This is Ben Guest, and this is Ben Bo's podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Jeff Perlman. Jeff Perlman is a writer and has written several fantastic books based around sports, including Three Ring Circus, about the Kobe, Shaq, Phil Jackson era Lakers, and Showtime, about the Magic Johnson, Pat Riley, James Worthy, Michael Cooper era Lakers. Can't recommend either one enough. You can also find all of Jeff's work at jeffperlman.com. Enjoy the conversation. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time. The first question I have is when you're interviewing a subject, what, what makes a good interview participant? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think the best people are, the best subjects are people who are sort of um, self-aware and have a, a willingness to sort of reflect on their lives and look deep into themselves and think about their motivations and think about where they've gone. Um, it's someone, weirdly, who doesn't just talk and talk and talk and talk. A lot of times those, those are actually the worst interviews. People would just go on and on and on and on um, because it's kind of like a self-awareness and almost like a filibuster a little bit. Uh, it's people who are open to sort of any question and you know, more or less, or, you know, what do you want to know about me? What do you want to know about me? I'm happy to talk about it. And, and I think also people who, um, I've definitely gotten this way as I get older, like, you're not as embarrassed as you used to be about stuff. Um, you're aware that the stuff you did that was seemed embarrassing or crappy is the same stuff that everyone does. Whether you're talking about like jerking off when you were whatever, 17 years old to a certain actress or, uh, getting in a car accident when you and so-and-so or the time you you took a girl to the prom and she spit in your face and went off with the court, whatever. All those like really good, the best stories are embarrassing stories. And when you're aware that we all have embarrassing stories and that they're not really that embarrassing to tell because they're relatable, that's when you really have a good interview. That's fantastic. And you have a great podcast called Two Writers Slinging Yang. And you had a Fantastic. I encourage everybody to subscribe. You had a fantastic episode the other day about the halcyon days of Sports Illustrated's bullpen in the 90s. And you start by talking about you got the call, you were in Nashville, and it was Tanaya, somebody you were, you know, you were maybe thinking about um, so, Tanya Tucker, man. Tanya, Tanya Tucker. Tanya Tucker. And, and for me, it was Erica Eldiak from Baywatch. And she was, I was in ninth grade. And she was on the cover of Playboy magazine. And I stole that Playboy magazine from a drugstore down the street in Baltimore, Maryland. And so, like you said, the best stories come from, you know, the, the most honest parts of our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with the thing. Is, I, I just always think like people tend to think that whatever they're going through, they're the only one going through it whatever it is, like you're a kid and you're embarrassed because you're whatever, you're having wet dreams or you're a kid and you're embarrassed because you have a crush on the girl so-and-so. And you're just not, you haven't experienced enough in life yet to realize that everyone, we're made similarly. Like humans are made in a certain, so those emotions are not unique just to you and those experiences aren't unique just to you. So you don't really need to be embarrassed because maybe the, when you're a kid, someone else will make fun of you because it's just an easy target. But the truth of the matter is, the kid making fun of you has his embarrassments too. So I like people who are willing, open to talking about their embarrassments. I love that stuff. 
Yes, 100%. And there's also an, another part. So actually, I just published, self-published uh, on Kindle, my first book on Monday. And your podcast, again, wow. is so helpful for demystifying the writing process, the publishing process, all of it. And one of the things I discovered is, you know what? Your friends and family, most people ain't going to care that much. Like your mom will care. And, you know, there have been times in, li in my life where, you know, I've been concerned about, like, if I lost a job, how was I going to explain this? For the most part, eh, people don't really care. So it's, you know, you sort of have to understand everybody's dealing with shit and it's fine to be honest about it. And also, what's a big deal to you in terms of how are people going to perceive this? Most people won't really care. I agree with that. I, uh, my dad, when I was younger, used to always say, he'd say, what's the number one thing people like to talk about themselves? I'm, what's the number one thing people like to talk about? And the answer is themselves. Um, we're all kind of self-indulgent at the end of the day. And most people, most people, if you're going through something, they'll ask the obligatory questions. Oh, how are you? Oh, what's that like? Blah, blah, blah. But most people really are thinking more about themselves than, than, than your concerns or your embarrassment or whatever. So yeah, I kind of agree. You're, we, we're all the centers of our own universes, you know, but I'm not the center of your universe and you're not the center of my universe. So we, we're, you know, we're, we're hyper-focused on our own flaws and highs and all that stuff. So. So I think maybe I'm 46. I think maybe you're just like two, two or three years older than I am. Um, so about the, so, so there you go, two years older. So you graduated high school in 91? 90. 90, okay. So senior year of high school, what music is Jeff Perlman bumping? Oh, man. I'm all about the, uh, well, two things. I'm all about the Hall and Oates. I was a huge Hall and Oates fan as a kid. Don't laugh at Hall and Oates. And then uh, I still like Hall and Oates. And then I was a big, it's funny because I went to a, um, I went to a very, I grew up in a very conservative, very white, slow moving town in upstate New York. And I got really into hip hop. It wasn't even, no one called it hip hop, they called it rap. And, you know, Run DMC and Big Daddy Kane, uh, Public Enemy, uh, you know, music that other kids actually weren't listening to. I'm kind of a stereotype in that regard. And I, I actually have this, this very profound and funny memory of the high school dance my senior year. It was in the uh, it was in the cafeteria, and I brought a, a, a tape of Big Daddy Kane because I love Big Daddy Kane, and I gave it to the kid who was DJing. And I was like, "There's a song on here called I Get the Job Done.' Please, this song's awesome. People are gonna love it." And everyone's dancing to their whatever Kenny Loggins and Billy Joel, whatever's playing. And he does me the favor and he puts on "I Get the Job Done" by Big Daddy Kane. I'm super excited, <laughs> and the dance floor just parts like nobody has any interest in this. They're just not there. So. Maybe I was ahead of my time in the Big Daddy Kane world. I don't know. Hey, you mentioned Public Enemy. So 91, so I was 16. And that's the year Ice Cube dropped America's Most Wanted, which was produced by oh. the, the same production, the Bomb Squad, that produced most of Public Enemy's early stuff. So wow, yeah, look at you. I remember that. I remember that well. I remember that year well. You know, the music we listened to in high school, that's the music we listened to forever. Actually, I would disagree. I um... Talk to me. Well, I agree to a certain degree. I hate 80s music with a passion. I have no interest in any. I mean, I like Hall and Oates, but not like 80s cheese Hall and Oates. So I actually, everyone's like, ah, oh, 80s music, 80s music. I'm like, it's my least favorite music. So I don't know. 
And I think we're both big Lauren Hill fans. On one of your podcasts, you mentioned that the name Yang came from a Lauren Hill song. So, right. of course, to my mind, she has the the second greatest album of all time. I, Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. I, I have to put just a little bit above. What's your favorite Lauren Hill song? I think uh, Everything is Everything. I love the song Everything is Everything. I also... Uh, I like, um, I mean, I like a lot of the Fuji stuff too, but when I, so I have, um, I have a turbulent flight song, which is everything is everything. Whenever I'm getting nervous on a plane, I just put on everything is everything on repeat. I've probably listened to that song about 17,000 times. So uh, but I love that album cover to cover. The one thing I don't like is the, um, I'm the one guy, I don't like the interludes of the kids talking in the, in the classroom because you hear it the first time and I get it. It's kind of a fun gimmick, but after you don't want to hear it a millionth time, you just want to listen to the damn music. So I, I do find that kind of annoying, but the album's spectacular we had the same brain on that. And I've said for years, at least I wish she had made it where they were separate tracks rather than actually connected to the song mm -hmm. because you can't exactly. skip it or, or burn your own CD. Very annoying. Yeah, 100%. Yes. All right, so like I said before, we, we started recording, I'm trying to get questions that you haven't been asked a hundred times before. Favorite type of taco? Favorite type of taco? Uh, I like a hard taco. I mean, you know, it's funny because we moved to California and you can you can drive to LA and the taco trucks are freaking insanely good. And you get these really great, great, really just like rich meat, blah, blah, blah. But in a generic sense, I like the hard shell. Uh, I don't really eat red meat. So it's usually a chicken taco slathered on with a lot of, uh, a lot of tomato. It's not so exciting. Nice, nice, okay. Three of your favorite sports books that you read growing up or as a young journalist? Um, my favorite sports book is probably, it's a book called A False Spring by Pat Jordan. And uh, it's a sort of obscure book. I mean, it's sold pretty well, but it's not as well known as some should be. And it was basically, Pat Jordan's a great writer. He's in his, I think he's in his seventies now. And he used to be, he was a, a hop, sort of up and coming high school baseball prospect, signed with the Milwaukee Braves. It's about his journey through the minor leagues and kind of uh, not living up to his potential and what that was like. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, when I was a kid, I loved a book called The Bronx Zoo. And it's a diary of the 1978 Yankee season uh, written by Sparky Lyle, who is a Yankee reliever. It's Sparky Lyle with Peter Golenbach. And that book I just freaking loved. And then um, there's a book that I, I really like now by a friend of mine actually named Jonathan I called Luckiest Man. And it's about a biography of Lou Gehrig. You have it there. And it's, uh, I mean, I love that book. It's great. So um, those are three, but I can name a thousand for you if you want. But I have, uh, you know, I grew up, I literally grew up and those are my, I've told this story before, but I, I grew up at a near library where they were, my small town mail pack public library where one of the librarians knew when they got sports books and she would call me and say, um, Jeff, just so you know, we got the new blah, blah, blah book in. We'll hold it for you if you come down. And I run down to the library and get the book. And I really do. I, it sounds cliche, but I mean this. Like, it's the little things that people do for you that maybe you don't realize at the time how important they are. Um, but I really, you know, cut my teeth on sports books by going to that library and having librarians look out for me and have the books ready for me. So I've always, I've never forgotten that. Yeah, I grew up uh, in Vermont, Burlington, Vermont, Waitsville, Vermont, and then Burlington. And 
library every weekend and and yeah. just you know, being someone who loves to read and being a nerd and and just having that um having a great library is is yep. so important i agree ah shit i wish but it, it sounds like you you mentioned that story before i'm trying to get stuff that people haven't bored you to death that's okay, that's okay. <laughs> but this this one yeah. I, i'm sure you've talked about before but I, I think it's also really helpful so this podcast my podcast generally focuses on education, creativity, teaching and learning, basketball. Um, what's your outlining process like? Uh, I don't have one. I, um, I don't have one at all. I have, um, I have an organizational process, which I guess is kind of a thing, but I, um, I, I never outline books. I never like, I just never do an outline. I do what I do do. And I'm, this is a little bit wasteful, so I'm not proud of it, but I, I do print every interview out. And I put in folders. If you look behind me, literally on my bed, I don't know if you can see it right there. Those are all my folders for the book I'm working on now. I like. I just like. I view. Uh, I don't know why. I kind of view it all like a collection. Every time I do an interview, it's like a collection. I'm adding it to a collection, and I like seeing the physical manifestation of that for some weird reason. So I print them all out, and then when I'm writing, I also have all these clips printed out, and I go chronologically. Like most books do, run a certain chronological course. So if it's a book I'm working on now on Bo Jackson, I will, um, when I start writing, I'm starting on his youth. So I'll take, just pull all the clips I have on his youth, the books I have on his youth and the interviews that are based on his youth and have them all by my side. And then when I move to the next part of his life, I'll go to the next folder and the next folder. So you don't want to be like me. Like I'm not a good role model for, uh, for how to do this, but you know, you do what you can. So there's sort of a tactile process to it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a process, but it's um, it's messy. Like I never, when people are like, you know, I get asked a fair amount from like aspiring authors or whatever. Oh, how do you organize? And I'm like, I'm not the guy, I would ask someone else about this and I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just not a good role model for organizational skills. My wife would laugh. I mean, I, I basically work out of a shithole office and papers here and papers there. And where did I put this? And where did I put that? And blah, 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 blah. It's, it's not a good scene. When you write... Do you get into flow state? What what are the sort of the, the things that need to be going on for you to get into that flow state if you do? And I'm hoping things open up here soon because I, I have a book due in October and so I'm going to start writing soon. And my thing is I really like writing at coffee shops. Like I really like writing at coffee shops. I do not like writing alone. And I like the uh, the illusion of social interaction is my thing. Yeah, like uh, you're not really... You know, it's not like you're around, you're around people, but you're not around people. And there's a barista to talk to if you want to be a little Gabby, or maybe the guy next to you or the woman next to you has a sticker on her laptop. And, oh, you went to so-and-so. I went to that school too. Oh, hey, blah, blah, what do you do? Blah, blah, blah. You do that for a few minutes, get your cup of coffee, you're drinking. And before you know it, 2,000 words are down on your screen. Like there's something about that whole scene that in my head worked. Now, the problem, the complication of that is all it takes is one really loud, obnoxious phone talker to break that. And that's a risk of the coffee shop or a baby who's screaming for 25 minutes straight, you know, and, and you're like, Oh man. So it comes with little trappings and I, I can get very sort of moody and snarly. And I'll, I walk into coffee shops with this huge duffel bag of clips and people look at you like, what, what do you do? You know, what are you doing? Who is that? Is there a body in there? Like what do you, but when it's going well, that's my hot spot right there. Fantastic. And now for editing, is it the same? Do you, do you like to be in a social situation when you're editing or is it different? 
Uh, I well, I don't like. I hate. I hate the whole editing process, so it's never enjoyable for me. Um, I guess it doesn't really matter in that regard. I mean, if we're gonna go through it. I might as well be in a coffee shop and at least be somewhere where I'm happy. But I do not. Um, it's not a fun. I hate. I hate editing. Hate it. What I really hate the moment I actually hate with editing. Some people love getting edited. I had a guy in my my podcast this week, Alex Wolf, who's one of the best writers out there. And he was raving about the editing process. I you'll never hear me rave about the editing process. It's like gutting. It's like gutting me, um, and I struggle with it. And that moment when you're when you're waiting for an editor, you sent in your book, and you're waiting for the editor to get back to you, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. It's freaking torture. It's my least favorite part of this whole thing. So I don't have any happy place for editing. I just endure it and do it. And then you need it. I do admit. I know I need it. I'm not saying that at all. I definitely need it. Editors are important and great and blah, blah, blah. It's just, I don't enjoy it. Cause you, you write, this stuff is very personal to you. You, you know, you work your ass off and you think every word is perfect and it's not, but you get in that moment where you think it is. And so. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. Um, uh, in my past life, I've made a couple um, short films including one about Elena Deladon, who's your ah, uh, university. Um, I mean, you guys are different, different decades. Yeah. But- but the nice thing was I was always, there were always films that I started, I generated, I had final cut, quote unquote. So I love the editing process because I love the feedback, but I would hate it if somebody could just tell me, okay, you did this, but now you have to cut that. And you've referenced a few times on your podcast about um, being a young reporter, being a young journalist and having to pitch stories and at some point, basically, somebody has to say yes at the, at the beginning. And it's almost like at the end, somebody has to say yes as well, uh, in this case, an editor. And it seems like it's, it's such an inefficient process um, that we have of, you know, you may have a great idea for a story, a story that would be, you know, a Pulitzer Prize winning story, but you got to get one fucking guy or one fucking person to say yes to it. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with your premise, but it's kind of like how life is. Someone thinks they have a, there are many amazing ideas that have just never developed because someone didn't think it was an amazing idea. And I've had book ideas and story ideas where I'm like, I know this is good. I know this is good. And someone else, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it wasn't that good. So, I mean, yeah, it's inefficient, but there's no, it's it's not math, you know, like it's, there's no, there's no definitive answer to these things. And Sometimes you just, yeah. I mean, I, when I was at the Tennessee in my first job, I would, well, I was a cocky little fuck, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't have listened to me either, but I would pitch stories all the time and have them rejected all the time. And I, I would just be, don't you want how do you not understand? How do you not see this? This is a great story, blah, 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 blah. And there's like, no. And they were probably right, you know, or maybe I, there is no right or wrong, maybe, but you know, it probably was knowing me back then, the ideas probably weren't very tasteful and they were, weren't right for the audience. And, you know, it's all kind of a crapshoot. It's the the thing is, I will say this: the most important thing, honest to God, none of it is that important. Like that's the thing. That's the best perspective I've had over the years. I did not have it when I was younger. Whether I mean, some things are important. Obviously, voting rights in Georgia right now are very important. But I'm saying, like, whether someone runs a story I wrote about the best waffles in Nashville, not that important in the grand scheme of life. So that's okay. It's not that big a deal. And you said, cocky little fuck, your, your words, not mine. And 
I'm certainly a recovering asshole. Uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, and you talked, uh, maybe it was the podcast you did with your wife. I think you've done a couple that were great. Your wife sounds great. My background is actually education, so I pro probably should be interviewing her. She, uh, that, that's that's more better opinion. than me. Yeah. Um, and you've talked about as a young journalist being super competitive, and then the bullpen at SI being super competitive. And you said something that was so great um, on one of the podcasts where you're with your wife, where you're like, I'm not competitive at all anymore. And you said, I think, quote, someone else's success doesn't take away from your success. Can you just yeah. talk about that evolution? Yeah, I just, I don't know what it is. I think um, a lot of people when you're younger, all of a sudden I talk like a grandpa, which is kind of weird. I'm not, I'm not even 50 yet, but I very like, it's like, um, when you're younger, you get in that competitive mindset and you want to be, you want to be, you want to be, and, and you push and you push and you push and you're fighting and scratching and clawing. And you, you tend to view others who are going through the, for the same achievements in life as rivals. Like you just do, it's just a natural thing. You view them as rivals. And I still, it's still like, sometimes I have to remind myself like that person doing well, that's not, you know, you see someone's book and it makes a bestseller list and yours doesn't, maybe you have a natural instinct Maybe we're just made, maybe we're not, maybe we're selfish. I mean, we have this debate in the house, like are people born selfish and you have to teach them not to be or are people born unselfish and they become selfish. I think people are born a little selfish and you have to teach yourself not to be. And I just, as I've gotten older, I mean, one of my good friends in the business is a perfect example, John Wertheim. And he's a, uh, he's a, we came up together at Sports Illustrated. He's one of my best friends. He is now, uh, one of the, uh, a correspondent for 60 minutes, you know, he writes for a million different places. He has this great, great, great freaking gig and deserves it. 20 years ago, I probably would have been jealous and I would have been like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd look for, you'd want to find holes. Even though as a friend of mine, you'd want to find little holes and be like, I could do that. I should be doing that. Who, why can't I do that? Trying thinking in your head, how can I, how can I ask him for, help, you know, to get a job there, but not really make it seem that that whole nonsense. And I swear to God, like now I'm just, I watch him and I'm, I, I feel such like pride, like pride, genuine pride. Like this is a guy I'm friends with and I know how hard he works and that means something to me and friends who get book deals. And I remember when I was at Sports Illustrated coming up and finding out that some of the guys I worked with at the same level made more money than me, right? And being poisoned by that knowledge. I think it's the worst thing you can know is how much your your colleagues are. And I was totally happy with my salary until I found out how much they were making. And I just think, again, someone else doing well, that does not impact me. That doesn't take away from me. It doesn't rub any of the shine off of me. I mean, any of that stuff. It doesn't even matter. I don't even care about my quote unquote shine. Like, no, that shit matter. Like, it doesn't really matter. So I just think as I've gotten older, I've come to realize maybe it's just maturity that someone else doing well does not mean I haven't done well. Um, and you should just be happy for people. You get one shot at life. Why, why be petty about it all? Everything is everything. There you go. It all comes back to Lauren Hill. Uh, so you think, so you said that there's sort of a, a debate in the household of people born selfish or not selfish. So what's your, what's your wife's take? Who's the expert on child psychology? I don't know what she thinks actually. We've discussed it. I can't say she's, she's ever given me the answer. Um, mm -hmm. I think she would say people are, are born decent and they're taught 
In fact, I know she said it. People are born decent and they're taught bad behaviors. And I just think people are maybe, I think when a kid comes out of the womb, your immediate thing is give me, give me, give me, you know, give me nipple, give me cuddling, give me blah, 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 give me milk, give me, et cetera. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think we're hardwired for cooperation. So what, what really makes a baby cry? Um, and, and so the last couple of years, so my PhD is in education. And the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of research into child psychology, how children learn. But what really makes a baby cry is hearing another baby cry. We're hardwired for empathy. And I think we're hardwired for cooperation. And I think that's what made us, you know, relatively weak um, uh, uh, animal be the top dog because it's our ability to cooperate with each other. Interesting. All right. That's actually kind of life affirming. I'm good with that. I have two Lakers questions. One, I know you haven't been asked before, um, but the other, let's, let's start with Kobe. So I was a high school coach in Mississippi. I was a quote unquote professional league coach here. I say quote, cause it was barely professional. Trust is key to an effective team. Trust on the court, trust off the court. Um, Kobe Bryant was a shitty teammate on the court and he was a shittier teammate off the court. Tell me I'm wrong. Mm, I mean, the era I was writing about, I think you're right. I do. I, do. I don't disagree. I don't even have it. I mean, the, the reality is like if Kobe hadn't died, um, this wouldn't be that much of a debate. And that, that's okay. Like, I, I'm not saying that in any way. That's not, that's okay. Um, it's, but it wouldn't be that much of a debate. Like he was from 96 to 04 when I covered at least. He was a bad teammate off the court and on the court. And he was selfish and self-absorbed. But again, like to be clear, so was I at that age in my own little newspaper world, you know? It sounds like so are you probably, you know, like you can't expect someone to come at 17 years old out of high school, hand him a shoe deal, line him up with a date with Brandy for the prom, have boys to man come to his press conference and then expect him to be this modest, beacon of virtue it's just unrealistic so i would say i'm not arguing with what you're saying but i think when people label it as like this horrible criticism of him I'm like, i don't really know what you would expect he was kind of made to be that way so it would be more of an upset if he came in and he was just modest and you know whatever it just it would have been really tough yeah yeah that's a good point uh second later question so before Miss Bus took over the, the basketball operations side of things, basketball operations was a mess, except for their drafting, their scouting. They were year after year able to draft productive players early in the draft, in the middle of the draft, at the end of the draft, depending on what year. And Jerry West, of course, is the, the greatest GM ever um, or, or evaluator of talent ever, maybe Red Auerbach. And Ryan West, Jerry West's son, was a scout for the Lakers. Do you think there's something there or am I reading too much into that? I mean, Ryan West had a really good reputation in the business. So it's certainly not, it's not, you know, they were, the Lakers weren't just hiring people because they were relatives. Like they actually went for talent and they went for, um, you know, they had a scout named Ronnie Lester for years who had been a pretty mediocre NBA guard. I mean, mediocre, obviously every NBA guard is really good, but you know, by NBA standards. Um, and he was a great scout for years and years and years. Um, so I actually think, I mean, I, did Ryan West find most of these guys? No, 
was he a talented basketball guy? Yes. Uh, I thought the Lakers were always very effective at identifying number one. They they became a really good organization at drafting and finding late guys to pick. Like that's a talent. That's really a talent. Finding contributors who are gonna you're not gonna find stars generally at 26, 27 or whatever, 22, 23 in the draft. But Lakers were really good at finding pieces, like quality pieces. They also were kind of interesting at um, taking shots on guys, like n- not being afraid of taking shots. Like one year they drafted Earl Jones, a seven-foot center at the University of District Columbia, Division II school. Didn't work. They didn't care. One year they used their first pick on Willie Glass out of St. John's. He was a 6'2 forward. Great athlete. Didn't work. That's okay. They were not afraid to go for it. You know, like that's part of it all. They just weren't afraid to go for it. Um, and they also like, they were the benefits of some beneficiaries of some really good trading and advanced thought. And the only reason they got James Worthy is because of a trade where they wound up with the number one pick, at the, you know, after having been a dynasty already. So I don't know. I can't say it's the Ryan West, but I just think a lot of, a lot of smarts in that organization. Yeah. Speaking of Showtime, I, I love three ring circus and I love Showtime. Uh, Showtime my favorite part, and I can't remember if this is in the book or this is an anecdote you gave in an interview, but it was about Jackie Cooper, Michael Cooper's wife. And it's about- uh, Wanda Cooper. Sorry. Oh, Wanda, sorry. Wanda Cooper. Wanda, no. Sorry about that. Wanda Cooper. Sorry. One of my favorite um, people in the world, Wanda Cooper. She seems like the unsung hero of the book. She's the best. I love Wanda. And, yeah. and this, this is the quote that I love. So talking about- Oh, I know what you're, you're going to say. I know exactly what quote you're going to say. Tell me. No, go ahead, say it. One less blowjob I had to give. <laughs> yeah, it's the best. <laughs> the um, best. The pro- that, that is a profound statement right there. I guess we I told explain- Wanda. Yeah, go ahead. Well, someone told me, basically, she found out her husband was cheating on her. And her response to that was, one less blowjob I have to give. This is the best quote ever, ever. And um, I don't think she told it to me. I think, I think she said it to someone else at the time. But the best thing about Wanda, the best thing about Wanda is I had no trouble saying, I got to ask you, did you say this? And she just laughed. I think she like laughed and was like, that sounds like something I would have said. So sure. She's the, if you can find one, one, the thing I love about Wanda Cooper, truly about Wanda Cooper is um, she just became kind of like a go-to and she's a real, she's become a really good friend. And I just think she's, I love people like that. Every book I write, you come away with one or two Wanda Coopers, where they're just people who you'd want to hang out with and, have, you know, whatever. So, uh, yeah, that was good. That's a great quote. Maybe the best quote ever. Oh, Maybe. that one, there are two great quotes. There are two great quotes in the history of books along those lines. One was uh, Wanda Cooper, uh, you know, one less blowjob I have to give. And the other was, um, I wrote a book about the 90s Dallas Cowboys. And um, they had an offensive lineman named Nate Newton. And the Cowboys got in trouble because they had a, a place called the White House, which was a, they basically rented a house in a suburban area where they would bring hookers and drugs. And Nate Newton's quote was, I don't get what the big deal is. We just get a little place to bring our hose and everyone's upset about it. It was like, you know, every now and then this quote's just like make here. I'm not even doing the Nate Newton quote justice, but it's something like that. I love it. And I felt the same way about the documentary projects that I've done. You finish them and you have some new friends. And sometimes you have a new, yep. really good friend. Totally, uh, so I, totally. I want to be mindful of your time. I, I have one or two other questions, but I also know that, that you're busy. And, Fire away. Okay. Um, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford. Talk to me about that. 
I think it's a great book. I don't know if anyone will read it. I just think it's cool. The, um, I just think it's cool the relationship that those two guys had. They ran a very fierce campaign against each other in 76. Carter won, um, Republican, Democrat, and they became, I heard Carter once say, he said, it was something like, you know, I don't know what our legacies are, blah, 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 but I can tell you there have never been two former presidents who became closer friends. And there are some videos of them on YouTube uh, doing an appearance with Tim Russer years and years ago, because obviously Jared Ford died and Tim Russer died. Um, just talking about their closeness and their bond. And Ger Gerald Ford is one of my favorite political figures of all time. And I'm a liberal Democrat. I just think he was a decent, decent human being who really wanted to do right. And even if I, again, like I can disagree with people's policies and still think at least that person has integrity. Like right now in America, Liz Cheney of Wyoming, I wouldn't agree with 99% of things she stands for, but she has integrity and she's trying to do the right thing. I can respect that. And Ford was that guy. He really was that guy. And he, there was a quote during that Ruster appearance when he said, the lesson he always learned was um, you can disagree agreeably. And I feel like that's almost dead in American politics now. You know, I think about that all the time. Like when you see political figures, especially members of Congress tweeting at each other. And I always say the same thing. You're literally five doors down from that person. Go talk to them. Like go talk to them. Even if you can't stand, go talk. You're five doors down from them. Get a cup of coffee. Maybe you disagree on everything, but at least have a civil cup of coffee. It is such a poor example. And I know they're doing it for points. They're doing it for Twitter points and clicks and likes and look at that. Yeah, but like, it's so pathetic. It's so pathetic. Go talk to the person right down the right down the hallway right there. And I feel like Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter are just sadly political leaders of a different era. Yeah, I've always felt Jimmy Carter's one of the few decent people that's ever been president. I, I, like you I wouldn't say few. I think there have been decent people, but I, the problem is like, you have to be, you have to have a huge ego and you have to be incredibly ambitious. Yeah. So. I mean, the way I think about it though, is, you know, how many of our presidents owned other human beings? How many of our presidents oh, owned yeah. other human beings that they raped and then enslaved their own children? I mean, it's a, a history of psychopaths as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. No, I don't disagree. Yeah. <laughs> that's a bit a whole nother podcast but i'm not i don't yeah. disagree uh well let me let me end on one thing speaking of doors um and it i can't recommend the episode your podcast episode about the si bullpen enough i was somebody that that read si as a teenager and it used to come on thursdays and i get it you know after high school i mean after school got out and then my dad would read it when he got home and every now and then it'd arrive on wednesday and i'd tell dad mm -hmm. Christmas came early today. And you talk about walking into the bullpen and passing these doors with these legendary writers' names, most of whom you know, work remotely. Um, but what was so great about the episode, so it's on its surface, it's about your experience in, in, at this time. But I think the underneath theme is about memory and time and how memories can differ how relationships can change. And it's fascinating because you talk about experiences where um, you disagree with somebody and then maybe there was afterwards people remembering things differently. And at the same time, you were keeping a diary. So it's like your past self is communicating to your future self. 
I know I should have a, wrap this up with a question, but it, it was just a fascinating exploration of on the surface, this great time and underneath someone um, older wrestling with their interrogating their younger self and their younger self speaking to their older self through diaries. Yeah, the diary, uh, I recommend everyone to keep diaries, I guess. I've kept diaries since 1996. And um, it's it's really, I mean, I always say, I don't, I don't, you can read them just wait till I'm dead. You know, like I don't, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there. It's just like, uh, um, but yeah, I just, I'm a fan of, I'm very nostalgic. I wish I, I wish I were less nostalgic. Uh, I feel like a lot of times it's, you can get trapped in the past and haunted by the past a little bit, but I'm very nostalgic. So that was a real, it was just a nice chance for me to go back and look at myself and look at that experience. And it really does. We, the show, the wife and I watched recently was Cobra Kai, which is the extension of the karate kid thing. And it's the quest, the looming question is like, is Daniel LaRusso actually the bad guy? And I just kept thinking about that. Maybe I was the asshole. I don't even think maybe I would definitely was an asshole. And at the time you think you're the best and you're right. And these people, why are these people being assholes? And you look back, whatever, 25 years later, and you're like, oh, wait, I was kind of a dick too. It's nothing wrong with that. It's, I feel like it cleanses the soul a little bit, you know? Also, I don't like having enemies. So I like um, I like some of those guys, like Matt Rudy was one of the guys on a podcast. I hadn't talked to Matt since I left the bullpen. And I hated him at the bullpen. And it was really nice to sort of look back and just sort of commiserate over who we were and how times change and, you know, I don't love aging, but there are some benefits to it. And one is perspective. I think that's the, the perfect place to end. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time. This has really been a treat. How much are you paying me for this? What, what's the money I'm getting for this? Everybody should go to jeffperlman.com right. and buy Showtime and buy Three Ring Circus and buy Sweetness and buy, what's the Brett Favre book? Uh, Gunslinger. So you've been to Kale, Mississippi. The Kill. The Duck Kill. Mississippi. Yep. Yep. Um, I have been. Uh, multiple visits, I believe. Yeah. Well, this is just I've been to Mississippi for two books, man. I did best. Walter Payton's book. So I was in Columbia, Mississippi, and Jackson, Mississippi. And then for Favre, I was in the Kill, Mississippi, and you know, the surrounding area and the bayou and all that. Yeah. I am I'm the rare liberal Jewish New Yorker who loves Mississippi. Loves Mississippi. And I know it had, comes with a lot of complications in history but I've enjoyed the richness of the state. I think the people tend to be very endearing and embracing. Um, I've, I got, again, his, historically, there's a lot to not like, and socially, there's still a lot not to like, but the state has a lot of interesting parts to it. And there's some real sort of, there's some definitely love in Mississippi as well. Nice. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Jeff Perlman. Jeff was a fantastic interview. You can buy his books on Amazon.com, including the two books about the Lakers. You can visit his website at jeffperlman.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. And of course, you can always find my work at benbow.substack.com. That's benbow.substack.com. Have a great day.